1: my parents' idol Franklin Delano Roosevelt proclaimed in the speech in which he also said that their generation had a rendezvous with destiny. The mystery that informed my own adult life revolves around a different rendezvous several decades after Roosevelt's speech. I was 16 and wide-eyed, and there really was a moment when peace and love was not meant or taken ironically. In terms of mass popular American culture, That moment peaked in 1967. Where did it come from? Where did it go? The hippie movement that swept through the Western world was like a galloping horse in the wild. A few dozen people were able to ride it for a while, some even steering it for a brief period, but no one, no philosopher, no spiritual figure, no dope dealer, no songwriter or artist, and certainly no political leader ever controlled it. It was the original open source. From the influence of psychedelics to a widespread rebellious ethos that resisted any kind of authority within various countercultures, the era can only be understood through a collection of disparate, sometimes contradictory narratives. Danny Goldberg
0: has been inside the music business since Jerry Wexler told him that there were no secrets in 1969. He was the president of Atlantic Records, Warner Brother Records, and Mercury Records. He currently runs Gold Village Entertainment. His books include Bumping Into Geniuses, My Life Inside the Rock and Roll Business, and Dispatches from the Culture Wars, How the Left Lost Teen Spirit. His new book is In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967, and The Hippie Idea. Thank you for joining me, Danny.
1: Thank you so much, Rick, for talking to me.
0: The... Core of this book and the big idea of this book is contained in the title, and I think it's so interesting the i the phrase the hippie idea. Many people would think that to be an oxymoron, yet you explain exactly what the hippie idea is. Not only that, how it is the inception for most of the culture that we currently live under, and I think that's a really fascinating uh, uh, concept. What led you to write this book as a memoir exploring the cultural concepts?
1: Well, I don't really look at it as a memoir. I say it's 95% history, 5% memoir, but it's a subjective history. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1967, and I wanted to explore and research all the things that influenced me so much as a teenager that I wasn't quite old enough to be part of myself. But because it's subjective and because no two people experience the 60s the same way i i wanted to frame it so that the reader would kind of know who whose eyes they're seeing this through and and you know i i I, from time to time uh bring in some people i went to high school with who who entered the culture in one way or another and 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 just to kind of uh, give a perspective because there were a zillion things going on and my perspective is that of a straight white new yorker uh you know, kind of secular Jewish background. I focused mostly on New York, California, a little bit on London. Um, I, I focused uh, particularly on the political protest movements, both the uh, in race relations, uh, the Black Power movement, Dr. King's nonviolent movement, the protest against the war in Vietnam, as well as the uh, introduction of psychedelics into the culture uh, on a mass scale. They'd been around for a while, but only became a mass, uh, a massively available uh, in 67, the beginnings of sort of the pop fascination with Eastern spirituality, which mostly happened because the Beatles were interested and they were the biggest stars in the world, and uh, and the explosion of the rock album business, which really happened that year as FM radio became a thing. It would play album cuts, and artists like the Beatles and the, psych- the uh, Jimi Hendrix and others started making albums as coherent, full statements, as opposed to just a collection of of, of, of hits, so th- that was sort of the, the the emotional context of it and I realized that it was going to be the 50th anniversary of a lot of the things that I was influenced by and it, uh, the 50th anniversary of 1968 was just around the corner and so many of the histories, the official kind of histories of the 60s, whether it's CNN documentaries or the way things are used in movies, uh, seem to focus on 68 or 69, the darker periods when protest and violence was so um, omnipresent. And I wanted to take a step back and remember a sweeter time when there still was a lot of darkness. People were dying in Vietnam, 67 of the worst racial disturbances in America since the Civil War. But it was balanced by this communal spirit of what, you know, the Greeks call agape, you know, universal love, which didn't last long. The hippie symbols were drained of meaning almost immediately by commercialism and darkness and predators and pretenders. Uh, and that's why I kind of cooked up this phrase, the hippie idea that t- to it's separate the essence of the feeling and the inspirational ideas from the external symbols. Cause the external symbols became a cartoon almost immediately.
0: I think that the proportion and of personal anecdote to history, and as you mentioned, the history is the largest part of this book, is really nicely done. And you mentioned a word, I think, that's really important, sweetness. This mm. was a time uh, of sweetness, of positivism, uh, of a kind of uh, a feeling that is clearly absent in the current moment, yet also underlies most of I think our culture now and, and this idea of the hippie idea is really interesting because I think, as I say, most people might not have thought there was like a coherent philosophy and to a certain extent, it wasn't coherent, but
1: there certainly was a philosophy back there, wasn't there? Well, I think the philosophy was not new. I mean, it's, it's some of the basic values, you know, peace and love and compassion and caring about your neighbor and all that are, are present in all the great religious traditions. But the 1960s was a time when religious traditions didn't influence everybody in America. They, they, a lot of us felt that distant from whatever religion we were born into, and it, it seemed more like a social tribal identity rather than a spiritual one. And the dominant ideology, I would dare say religion of America then, and in some ways now, was materialism. And um, there was a sense of, rebellion against defining life solely by how much money people made or what their public position was, what universities they went to, or what their grades were. And there was a questioning of the authority because the Vietnam War seemed so irrational to many of us. Of course, there were a lot of people that supported the Vietnam War. I don't pretend that the people of the counterculture were the only people alive in 1967, nor were we a majority even then. But we made a big noise and left some footprints and the footprints of that thing that inspired me i think still i'm mixing my metaphors here but they still they still reverberate in some ways more culturally than politically you know peter coyote who was leading mind of the figures who were a very important influence in haight ashbury and in the counterculture has said that that the counterculture won all the cultural battles and lost all the political battles. I think there's a little bit of extreme in that, but certainly the, the, there were no yoga places in the 60s. Now they're everywhere. There were no veggie burgers. Now they're everywhere. There, there was no discussions of mindfulness on the mass stage. Um, those, kind, you know, alternative medicine, those kind of, and of course gay rights, feminism, those ideas did take hold. The end of censorship in the arts. Uh, And the political battles dealing with the so-called military-industrial complex, with greed, with disparity of income, uh, have mostly been been lost. But of course, the opposition on those issues is much better funded. So I I don't hold it against political activists that that that's what happened. I admire, in researching the book, I grew to admire the anti-war activists more than I thought I would, seeing the purity of a lot of their intent and the dilemmas and darknesses they were faced with but there's no question that the cultural um, ideas uh, succeeded and the political struggles we're still struggling with uh,
0: one of the things i found most interesting was your look at the the various uh, what you call i think this is really good tribes who you know amassed uh, in especially in uh, san francisco and, and i the ones that that you mentioned, the diggers, this is really important because I think this still runs through the political left to this day. These fractions that you describe in 1967, they're here with us in the 21st century, largely unchanged.
1: Well, you know, one of the there's probably about a dozen heroes in, 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 in the book that people that still seem heroic to me. Certainly one is Martin Luther King. One is Allen Ginsberg. Uh, but one of them is Peter Coyote, who is not as famous, although he became pretty well known as an actor in the last 30 or 40 years. He was in E.T. and a lot of other movies, and you hear his great voice and voiceovers on Ken Burns' documentaries. But in the, uh, in the Haight-Ashbury period, the diggers were a group of people who came from experimental theater, performance art, and, and, and had a radical anarchist view of society. They believed that everything should be free and the elimination of money. And they were fierce uh, moralizers criticizing people in the counterculture that they thought were selling out. I think in retrospect, they were too hard on some of the hippies and some of the radicals. But on the other hand, they did create kind of a conscience that, that had a, a much more positive influence than than otherwise. And they did on the ground do a lot in Haight-Ashbury H- that made it the phenomenon that it was in 66 and up to the beginning of 67 by having a free food kitchen, a free store, uh, staging a lot of the free concerts, and generally being kind of thought leaders in that community. And uh, what happened is that uh, there was divisions that you mentioned. The big division was between political radicals who felt that the struggle against the war in Vietnam and for economic justice was the real work of the counterculture, and that, uh, you know, spirituality and psychedelics were pretty much a distraction from that, and rock and roll, unless you could use those things to organize this wider counterculture to support this political agenda, and the and the more psychedelic, spiritual-leaning so-called hippies who felt that the inner, you, you, you can't fix things externally until you fix things internally, and that, uh, as one person said, it's no good to for peace through clenched teeth, and uh, Doctor Dr. King, who, as far as we know, never took psychedelics, didn't seem to have needed them. He was he was a mystic, uh, and saw the universe in in in, in a deep way, uh, certainly comparable to any of the uh, guru types that would come along and anybody who really is a spiritual person to me recognizes that Jesus and Krishna and Buddha are all sort of on the same team. They're not arguing up there in heaven. They're part of one truth. Uh, he also talked a lot about the need to transform inwardly in order to be effective in transforming things outwardly. But on the ground, there were people who, when they woke up in the morning, identified themselves as activists and protesters and others who didn't. And, um, Near the end of 66, a number of the people in the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco, which is where the hippie movement really blossomed and, 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 and started in many ways, uh, decided they would have something called a human being. And the subtitle was a gathering of the tribes with the precise goal of finding commonality between the radicals, the hippies, and the different forms of, 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 of uh, counterculture ideas, which, which, and, and you know, almost every apartment had a separate philosophy of how to change the world. And, um, prior to that, the, the biggest audiences, crowds for the free concerts and other kind of hip events in, in, in the Bay area in the, in the mid sixties was I think five or 6,000 and the BN had at least 35,000. Some people claim it was as much of a hundred thousand, but it was certainly five or six times greater than any for previous gathering of uh, hippies or freaks or whatever people wanted to call themselves at the time, and it attracted the attention of the international media as a result, and that's why 67 was the year in which this subculture briefly became a key part of the mainstream culture, and TV networks and mass appeal magazines and this burgeoning alternative radio, an underground press suddenly took ideas that had been kind of the province of small bohemian communities for the previous century or two and brought them into the mass appeal pop landscape. And that to me is what was unique about the late 60s. There were always subcultures, but this was the first time a subculture actually commanded briefly the attention of the mainstream culture.
0: I love the way that you create the, the characters of the heroes in these cultures and in these stories. They're wonderful stories. You do a great job of turning history to of finding the real story in history, which is really important. And in order to do that, you create these wonderful characters. Allen Ginsberg, who we all know is so, so famous about. Uh, in your book, he just emerges as a really wonderful figure. So uh, talk about uh, your time. You you met Alan Gitzberg.
1: I did. I I, I didn't meet him, uh, alas, in the late 60s. I would have loved to have met him there. I just was an (laughs) irafic. But I did get to meet him in the last uh, five or six years of his life. Uh, I I became, at at some point in the uh, 90s, president of Mercury Records and made the last recordings that Alan made. Alan loved to to, to sing and, and make recordings is among his many, many interests. And, um, you know, he's such a, so I'm biased. I loved him and looked up to him. He was one of the most amazing and brilliant and kindest people I ever met. But but separate and apart from my own experiences with him, I just think objectively he he, he was the first among equals in the 60s culture. He, of course, had emerged into the, into the culture in the 50s as one of the key members of the so-called beatniks, the literary group of people, including him, Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, and others, and 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 had read the poem Howl, I think it was in 1955 for the first time, in San Francisco at a, at a coffee house there. And that begins with the words, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. And it was just a revolutionary poem. Uh, there are a few poems in American history that had that kind of impact because it it, it was a cry against conformity and a recognition of the humanity of people that were outcasts, according to the pop culture. And um, and the beatniks inspired so much of the 60s culture. Uh, Jerry Garcia said that if it weren't for reading Jack Kerouac, he didn't think he could have become the person that he became. And of course, Ken Kesey, who was one of the popularizers of LSD, traveled with Neil Cassidy, who was the hero of On the Road, Kerouac's great novel. But Kerouac didn't like the hippie movement. He was much more into alcohol than he was into other drugs. He, 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 he was suspicious of the anti-war movement. I think he had a hard time accepting the idea that he wasn't young anymore. And he became embittered and removed. Allen Ginsberg, on the other hand, embraced everything new that came along. And he was that way until his dying day, I might add. And 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 he jumped into the hippie movement. He became friends with the Beatles. He became friends with Bob Dylan. There's a scene of Dylan and, and Ginsberg in, in Dylan's great documentary, Don't Look Back, which first was um, shown in 1967 based on British tour the year before. Uh, he took LSD with Tim Leary. Uh, Leary, uh, you know, of course, was a Harvard professor who, popularized uh, LSD to many in America after he took it and uh, wanted to uh, have artists take LSD because he felt that artists would be in a unique position to explain this inner experience that didn't lend itself to prose and conventional language. And uh, Ginsburg loved it and turned on many other artists, uh, including uh, jazz players like Dizzy Gillespie and, and Kerouac. Um, and And so, by the time they did the be in, Ginsburg was thirty eight or thirty nine years old, at least you know, fifteen, twenty years older than the people that were on the cutting edge of the hippie culture. But they admired him for his poetry and for his openness. for he had spent a lot of time in India, was very interested in Eastern religions uh, and 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 he liked the, he liked psychedelics. And so he was sort of the MC of the human being and the unifying figure because he was accepted by. Even the Emmett Grogan, the most radical of the diggers, wrote that Allen Ginsberg was one of the few good human beings he had met. Uh, he was accepted among the radicals who were against the war. And uh, he himself uh, withheld the uh, payment of some of his taxes because he didn't want his tax money used uh, for the war in Vietnam. And he wrote poems about the war. And he was also deeply committed to the idea of an inner, inner life and of redefining what it was to be a human being. So so to me, he's one of the really central un- and one of the very few unifying figures in a counterculture that was, as you said, quite fragmented.
0: I like that you mentioned that he was uh, unifying because as you described him, that's what I was thinking. He did. He was a man who stood at the center of what was happening. And I think that you mentioned something too that was really important that is uh, perhaps under, uh, under uh, described, which is, the birth of the mass media, this was the time when the mass media as we know it today was was born conceived of. And that, that was, played a huge part in both <clears throat> the spreading of the hippie idea and also the destruction of the hippie idea.
1: No question about it. It was certainly an inflection point in the media. Obviously, uh, network TV had existed from the early 1950s and radio from the 1920s uh, and, you know, since the invention of the printing press by Gutenberg hundreds of years earlier. But, but one of the principal minds in understanding that the media could be used by a counterculture and not just by authority figures was, was uh, Marshall McLuhan who was uh, well into his 60s or 50s or 60s. I, I, it's in the book, The Accurate Year, I, I, I forget. He was a Canadian uh, professor and he had written a book called Understanding Media that came out in 65 that was a huge influence on a lot of people in the counterculture because he he, he, he had these ideas about how um, what today we would call memes or framing could change the conversation. And that didn't have to necessarily come from the owners of the media. It could come from people who were adept at capturing the attention of the media. And of course, the commercial media, relied then as now on advertising and uh, they wanted young people because young people, that's when brand preferences are created. And there was this gigantic generation called the baby boom generation. It was the largest American generation since the current millennial generation, far bigger than the one that came before it. And so they were manipulable uh, by people like Tim Leary and Abby Hoffman and some of the San Francisco rock bands. And he was a big influence. Tim Leary became famous for the slogan, turn on, tune in, drop out. That came out of a lunch he had with Marshall McLuhan where McLuhan urged him to have catchphrases. And the the uh, two uh, influential members of the anti-war movement who also dabbled in the hippie world, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were both um, followers of McLuhan and so was uh, uh, so was um, uh, uh, John Lennon, who was a friend of McLuhan. But uh, it wasn't only the McLuhan-esque concept that changed the media. It was technology. Uh, uh, FM radio um, became a huge connector of millions and millions of people in North America because the FCC uh, passed a law, uh, made a new ruling that that they couldn't, that radio station owners couldn't just duplicate AM programming on the FM band. And FM, which had been the province of foreign language programming and occasionally classical music, starting in San Francisco became a place where albums could be heard and not just singles. So if you were a Doris fan, on the Top 40 radio, you could only hear their hit, Light My Fire. But on KMPX, which was the first of what was called underground radio stations, in San and it started, of course, in San Francisco, inspired by the Hayden Ashbury scene, they'd play the 10-minute song, The End. And uh, similar with Dylan, instead of only hearing his single, uh, Like a Rolling Stone, you could hear Desolation Row and Queen Jane... You know, and and uh, all the you know many other many other album songs that that made people more people more deeply connected to artists, therefore to each other by sharing this taste, and it became kind of a tribal switchboard where the the quickly uh, it, it tremendously accelerated connectivity among younger people. And weirdly enough, the development of the mimeograph machine was a big deal. It was it was uh, for a couple of thousand do- for a couple of thousand dollars. You know, it used to be that you had to be a wealthy uh, person to to have any kind of a magazine because printing costs were so high. And the mimeograph machine, there was a company called Gestetner that made one for a couple of thousand dollars. And so the diggers in San Francisco had one of these machines and they would hand out these circulars. Uh, The Black Panther uh, newspaper, which emerged at the end of 67, was originally printed on that mimeograph machine in New York when they when they did the. the New York version of the Bean, in and Easter of 67. The flyers were made on such a mimeograph machine that had been uh, given them for free uh, by somebody at the Village Voice, which was a counterculture paper. And a lot of the underground papers be- sprang into existence around this time because it became so much cheaper to just publish. And so there were this alternative media that, that, that was pushing the mass media Uh, because the mass media needed those advertisers. Uh, And then there was a final weird fact that people who study the 60s are aware of, which is that the two biggest magazines in America were Time and Life, both owned by a man named Henry Luce, one of the great media barons in American history. And in that era, there was no internet, there were no blogs. I mean, magazines had enormous power, and none of them had more power than time in life. And it so happened, and Henry Luce was, was not a liberal. He was a cold warrior. He was for the war in Vietnam. His wife, Claire Booth Luce, had been an ambassador and a congresswoman uh, Republican. But they, somehow or other, in the early experiments with LSD that actually the CIA did, thinking that the psychedelic might be a mind-control drug, uh, was made available to some elites. And the Luce's took LSD in the late 1950s. And time and life gave extremely favorable coverage to psychedelics uh, well into the 70s. And this this, uh, gave a legitimacy to it and took it out of kind of the criminal category uh, for a lot of people. Uh, In fact, Tim Leary first found out about psychedelics by reading an article about so-called magic mushrooms in Life magazine. And then he went to Mexico and took them. They included those mushrooms, had psychedelic psilocybin. So... The the, uh, the media uh, was this huge multiplier of a lot of these ideas, and as you said, it also uh, was a corrupter, firstly, because there was a dumbing down in, in the mass media that kind of cartoonized some of the hip culture, secondly, because things that were kind of private tribal signals between people became uh, so well known that uh, whether it was an FBI agent or a rapist, they could kind of use hip language and 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 clothing, and therefore eliminate the 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 deeper meaning of what those things first were. And also because by creating kind of a sense of celebrity for some of the people that I write about, some of them just got distorted by that. It was a culture that was suspicious of leaders and so could turn on these people. Uh, and it was also the reality is that fame is a drug and 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 some people didn't handle it so well. And this particularly affected some of the musicians who went from playing free shows to their extended family and friends to being, uh, you know, international uh, rock stars. And uh, many of them didn't handle it so well. So the media, exactly as you said, both exploded and created this apex of the hippie idea and almost immediately then was part of its destruction. Uh, But there was a brief period before it was destroyed when it was quite amazing to have uh, some of these uh, metaphysical ideas part of pop conversation.
0: You mentioned Timothy Leary. I can't leave this conversation without mentioning the title of this book and the most famous song in many ways by the Moody Blues, which uh, mentions Timothy Leary. So talk about um, choosing the title for this book, the import of Leary, and also the import of (laughs) the Moody Blues.
1: Well, to be candid, I took, I picked the title because I just thought it was a great title. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I just, uh, I originally had a working title uh, called It Was 50 Years Ago Today, which was a riff based on the sergeant, the, the first song on the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club album. It was 20 years ago today. Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. And when I mentioned it to people, I found that anybody under 40 just didn't know what the reference was. And so the joke was lost on them. And that really alarmed me. And I, I, I although I, I recognize this book is mostly for people of my own generation, I don't want it to be inaccessible to other people. So I was trying to think of another title. And, you know, I know song titles can provide a poet poetry and uh, they're not copyrightable. So you can take a song title. And I, I just was looking through songs of the 60s. And I came across this and knew immediately that the title itself summed up what I was trying to get at at the book, which, which was, to me, there was a particular combination of things, the conceit of the title being notes that, that existed for a period of time and created this larger feeling, the whole being greater than some of its parts, what I call the lost chord, and lost because by 1968, there were the assassinations, there was heroin and speed and hip neighborhoods, uh, you know, and, 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 and the balance of these energies had changed. Um, in terms of the Moody Blues in particular, there's no question that they were a pop band originally, kind of a latecomer in the so-called British invasion. And they had a song called Go Now. And somewhere along the line, the members clearly took Psychedelics and made a series of albums that were really, uh, head trip records inspired by Sergeant Peppers maybe, but having their very own world that they created. And I think they're somewhat underrated, uh, you know, uh, just the way, Rock history has been told, and I was happy to acknowledge them. And it, it turns out that that on um, on that album uh, that I think actually came out in 1968, but uh, they had a song called Legend of the Mind, which was about Tim Leary. And it has the line in it, Timothy Leary's dead. And what it meant was that his ego was dead. And now the new Tim Leary was there. It was a direct homage to Tim. So I thought that... Uh, That you know, it had multiple purposes as a title, but truthfully, I just liked the title. That was the main reason I used it. Uh,
0: You know, you mentioned too about the the explosion in rock and how important music became because music heretofore, which had just been something, uh, some kind of entertainment, was transformed and largely, maybe in 1967, from uh, something that you listen to that's fun to your choice in music also became a reflection of your political,
1: your cultural,
0: your moral uh, center.
1: Yeah, I I know when you went to someone's apartment or home, the first thing you do is look at their record collection and give you a pretty good idea of how much you had in common with them. Uh, the the um, There was always serious music, classical music, folk, and jazz were for more, generally speaking, considered kind of more intellectual, serious people. And then rock and roll was kind of pop and mostly about uh, romance, dating, and dancing, and and the big transformative, and, and it was sort of Dylan and the Beatles kind of merged these two things. Uh, Dylan, by going electric, took folk poetry into rock and roll, and the Beatles clearly paid attention to Dylan, and and almost immediately the sophistication of their lyrics, starting with the album Rubber Soul, uh, became much deeper. And then there was, like I said, this this new media that allowed people to process albums, stereo, which when it first was invented was just for wealthy people. The price had dropped enough where there were these portable stereos, record players that seemed to be in every college dorm room. And uh, headphones, which used to only be used in studios by engineers, suddenly were a mass appeal item. Um, so so uh, the arc of... Creativity was such that 1967 was the day, the year of the debut albums of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, The Doors, Pink Floyd, The Velvet Underground, <laughs> and Sly and the Family Stone. All of them making their debut album that same year, and all of them, of course, we still talk about their music today. Uh, and and you hear that music today in movies and and uh, you know on Spotify playlists and. And, and things like that. And it was the year that the Beatles arguably peaked with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, their biggest record. And separately from that, the song All You Need Is Love, which was the first satellite television broadcast ever. They debuted that, and I think a billion people saw it or something like that. And there were some other songs that are iconic songs that happened to come out the same year. White of Shade of Pale by Procol Harem, Happy Together by the Turtles, Get Together by the Youngblood. So every year has great music. I have two kids in their 20s and they are just as emotionally connected to music as I was at that age. I don't think God turns off the faucet, but there was a confluence of events between the war in Vietnam, the prevalence of psychedelics, the changes in technology, the size of the baby boom generation that made 1967 a uniquely influential year in terms of music.
0: You mentioned psychedelics, and, and I love your stories about the psychedelic shop and, and all the uh, the uh, quandaries at uh, the psychedelic shops that opened came to because they were, by virtue of being shops, they were selling things to a culture that thought, well, these things should be free. There was a lot of really interesting um, cultural back and forth over the psychedelics and the psychedelic shop, I thought.
1: Well, there's no question in haight Ashbury in particular, and you got to remember this is a small neighborhood, and there was only a few thousand people really that were part of that community that ended up becoming so iconic and created what fifty years later people called a summer of love. you know and and there was a lot of tension between the diggers who really had this, Ex, you know, extreme opinion that everything should be free, and and in fairness to reality, I don't think they ever had a theory of how to actually implement that. It's one thing to have, <laughs> uh, you can do it in a micro situation, which they did admirably by getting cast off food from soup kitchens and making digger stew and feeding several hundred people a week, and a store where people give things and then they're given away. But to to to, to uh, create that on a Unified national scale is something that no one's ever been able to do so far. And, um, and uh, meanwhile, people have to survive, and money is part of how they do it. And the question is, then, are you acting in an ethical or an unethical way, as far as I'm concerned about, about money? But they were very hard on the hate Street merchants, some of whom were very sincere. The psychedelic store was run by two brothers whose last name was Thalen. Uh, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm forgetting their first names right now, and they were completely sincere. In fact, they closed by the end of '67 because they felt the scene had moved on. And one of the guys became, a, I think, a fireman and just lived in the country, and you know, did not try to become a big businessman. And at the same time, '67 was the year that Rolling Stone magazine was created and built uh, a fortune for Jan Wenner worth uh, tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. But on the other hand, I still think Rolling Stone's quite a good magazine. And uh, similarly, some of the musicians uh, became wealthy. Some of them didn't. Some of them became drug addicts. Some of them didn't. Money uh, and fame were uh, certainly very capable of corrupting people, and yet these are issues that uh, human beings just have to balance and and, and go through. But within the Haight Ashbury microcosm, there was a lot of tension between the so-called hate Street merchants and the and the diggers and some of the other hippies on the balance of things. And, uh, those arguments continued for the life of Peyton Ashbury, and those were some some of the tribes that had to temporarily be brought together.
0: You also take us back from before and to after with regards to the civil rights. The civil rights movement really, really was important and, and informed the hippie movement in many ways.
1: Well, you know, the civil rights movement was just one of the great... Uh, epics in American history, the greats, you know, original sin of America, obviously, the twin original sins are the way Native Americans were treated and and and, and slavery of Africans. And, um, uh, you know, uh, 90 years after the Civil War, uh, there was still legal segregation in most of the South and uh, the post-war, you know, uh, African-Americans back from World War II just we not in the mood to take it anymore, and uh, and and some whites who had dedicated themselves to a war against a racist and fascist Nazi regime were more critical of racism. And the circumstances were such that uh, the Supreme Court uh, made uh, legal segregation in public schools uh, illegal. The Brown v. Board of Education case at almost exactly the same time that A young minister in Montgomery named Martin Luther King, who was still in his 20s, led the Montgomery bus boycott and ended segregation on buses and kind of launched what became known as the civil rights movement, where dozens of different groups worked on these issues of racism and segregation in different ways. They weren't all followers of Dr. King, but uh, he was certainly, to me, the greatest of the leaders. And... um, Obviously, Malcolm X emerged uh, in the early 60s uh, with a different philosophy, uh, more black nationalism, and he was a dedicated uh, Muslim, and he did not believe in nonviolence, and he was also very inspirational. So by 67, you've got a very complicated and intense energy in the American black community, uh, and, and uh, white liberals and white hippies were all... Uh, influenced by this, the the courage of the civil rights movement, the moral example they set, the gross immorality of all forms of segregation, in terms in, including ones that affected economics, were horrible. Uh, at the same time, the the um, inspiration of black music permeated rock and roll. Rock and roll, arguably, you know, was a uh, more influenced by black music than any other. Uh, Source and the Beatles and Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan all began their careers uh, in part by covering songs of black songwriters. And, um, and you had a lot of very intense characters uh, on, the, on the public stage. Uh, Dr. King, I still put it number one, and it was the last full year of his life. He was far more radical on economics and on the war than he often remembered. It was the year he came out against the war in Vietnam and uh, alienated the mainstream civil rights groups who thought that he was uh, going to hurt them in black-white relations, and he felt as a pacifist he had no moral choice. At the same time, um, a man named Stokely Carmichael became the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and uh, which had been a, a, on the cutting edge of a lot of voting rights uh, uh, actions in the South. And Carmichael did not particularly believe in nonviolence, he, he coined the phrase black power and was was sort of a, a to the left of and a more radical voice on the public stage than Dr. King was. They had a complicated relationship. Uh, Carmichael uh, publicly uh, kind of ridiculed King at times, but also admired him, and when King made his first speech against the war, Carmichael was sitting in the front pew. Uh, but 67 is also the year where uh, Muhammad Ali, who had been a heavyweight champion since 64, uh, refused to be inducted and was convicted of draft evasion and stripped of his heavyweight title. Uh, he was the, at that time the most famous person to be against the war in Vietnam. And it was also the time of, um, of, uh, of race riots uh, in many, many uh, American cities uh, that... Uh, it created more death and destruction than than anything since. Um, it was the year that Adam Clayton Powell, who was a very powerful African-American congressman from Harlem, uh, got into, he, he, he had pushed through so many of the so-called great society legislative accomplishments that he became a target and for infractions that he felt were similar to white congresspeople was actually... Uh, thrown out of Congress, uh, and then he was reelected by his district and re-entered Congress. Uh, So it it was quite a year. uh, It was quite a year in black-white relations. It was quite a year in the black community writ large. It was a year of uh, certainly that the Black Panthers emerged onto the stage by the end of 67. Um, And um, there was some separation within the left. A lot of the um, organizations like CORE and SNCC Really wanted whites out of their leadership. They felt that they would be uh, co-opted by money, which is something Malcolm X had warned against. And uh, there was a lot of soul searching among white radicals about how to be honor the uh, racism, the fact of it, how to how to, how, to, how to in their own activities and lives um, oppose it, and yet still keep their distance when asked to by by black leaders. So it was it was uh, intense time in race relations, which was intertwined with all of the other aspects of the 60s. And I don't think there would have been an anti-war movement or a feminist movement or a gay rights movement if the civil rights movement hadn't shown the way of how certain kinds of protests could be effective and reframe language and ideas and and move elites.
0: You also talk about, there's a a great line from uh, Leary where he says, if Pepsi Cola can be marketed around... (laughs) (laughs) the world-soaking, the hippie idea. I think this is a really interesting approach because uh, you talked about, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about the sweetness that was at the heart, I think, of this book, which is really uh, a lovely kind of uh, look at this time. But also that uh, Leary and the people in the movements and all these various movements realized that the positive things they were saying could be a big force to bring people in.
1: Well, you know, Leary is such a complicated figure and someone I was lucky enough also to get to know sort of the last 10 years of his life, but also I did not know him in the 60s. And I think that he was a visionary. He was definitely one of the smartest people uh, on the scene. You know, again, a Harvard professor uh, and, and, and one of the leading psychology professors in the, in the, in the country. Um, and uh, one of the people who articulated the positive aspects of psychedelics in the most compelling way. But I think that becoming famous also um, went to his head and that there was a sense of messianic, we're going to change the world very quickly, that was uh, naive and in some ways counterproductive because it didn't give enough compassion to people that were just on a different page for whatever reason. Um, But there was that sense of we're going to change the world and we're going to do it quickly. And I think the intent of it was quite beautiful. I think the impatience of it was quite uh, counterproductive. It's, uh, after all, the life of Jesus Christ didn't completely change the world. It, it, It created Christianity, but it didn't eliminate greed and violence, and neither did the life of the Buddha, and neither did the Enlightenment. Neither the creation of the internet, you know uh, these seem to be human <laughs> these seem to be human issues that are cosmic and that are not limited to any one time. So the idea that everything was going to be utopia within one generation was uh, ridiculous. Uh, but the, the aspiration for that was noble.
0: What do you think brought about the downfall of the, the hippies?
1: I think first of all, it just was not uh, destiny uh, for something like this to be permanent. Um, uh, the, the, uh, I, I give the analogy of, um, kind of an LSB trip where for, for a few hours you sort of feel merged with the universe and love is in every atom and every flower. And then you come down and you're dealing with your own personality and everyone else's personality and the limits of planet earth. And and the foibles of humanity, and in a way, I, I I have a imagined that sort of a group of people, a million or so, took a trip together and had that vision, but of course had to come down and do the hard work of trying to build a better world over the course of a lifetime and contributing to the march of humanity through the centuries without impatience or naivete. Hopefully, um, and some of the specific things certainly included the media uh, glare. That, that, again, drain the symbols of meaning. And so people were sort of back on their own in terms of grappling with values because anybody could wear their hair long. Anyone could use words like hip and groovy and cool. Anyone could buy a Beatles record or a Jefferson Airplane record. And uh, they didn't necessarily share all of the purest values. So uh, I think the drugs also were of limited value. I think for some people, psychedelics opened the door to spirituality that they hadn't got from their... Religious traditions, and created a model to aspire to. And uh, but but ultimately, it's not a long-term strategy for changing one's life for the better. It's 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 a it, it it's a glimpse of something that you can aspire to, not a panacea. And uh, because it was illegal, it became the province of drug dealers, who also would sell heroin and speed, and a lot of people who were so suspicious of authorities because they had said that marijuana was going to ruin your mind or that uh, the war in Vietnam was integral to American security, they rejected uh, good advice from authority figures, such as that heroin is addictive and speed fries your brain. So bad drugs, media, um, those were two big things. And then, of course, there was a violent uh, counter-revolution from uh, the so-called establishment. Um, The FBI under J. Edgar Hoover was far worse than anything that we've seen in recent years. The uh, many of our leaders were murdered. The, the two that had the best chance of connecting the established order and functionality with this new idealistic generation, Dr. Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were both murdered in 1968. And, uh, you know, no one replaced them. Those people don't uh, don't uh, come along uh, very often. And um, so, so this is just uh, one of those things that wasn't destined to last except as an inspiration. In San Francisco, uh, the the diggers and the people that published the San Francisco Oracle and the people that had the psychedelic job knew this very early on and they actually had a ceremony in October of 67 called the Death of Hippie where they, they, um, you know, created the circular explaining how media had kind of drained it of meaning and marched through San Francisco with a coffin. Uh... And uh, so, so they knew that this was, was that the, the external picture of it had, was dead by the end of '67, although the inner feelings and the music and the, the struggle against the war and, and the struggle for uh, particularly sexual liberation um, would continue for many years and reverberate into the '70s. But, but the, the purity of the hippie, hippie, hippie was a cartoon word by the end of '68. Uh, hip language was the fodder of sitcoms by the end of 68. Uh, the, the external symbols just couldn't continue to have meaning once they intersected with the mass media and with darkness in the world. But, but the memory of it informed a lot of things. I think that, that all of the research I did about the beginnings of the internet were that almost all of the internet pioneers, certainly including Steve Jobs, were deeply influenced by hippie culture where uh, uh, Jobs uh, took LSD and said that he had a hard time trusting people who hadn't taken it. He went to India to meet nim Krolli Baba, who was the guru of Richard Alpert, who then renamed him Ramdas, Dass, and uh, members, uh, you, you know, many people involved in, in that first wave of the internet who created the idea of open source. Uh, were directly, you know, first of all, they were in Northern California and were influenced by that culture. And the whole new age movement, you know, the, the epitomized on the pop screen by people like Deepak Chopra, Oprah Winfrey, all was directly influenced by the uh, Maharishi and the Harkistan movement and and the uh, poets uh, and songwriters of the 60s. So the reverberations of the hippie idea to me are still quite clear. The environmental movement is the direct outcome of of the hippie movement but but the 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 idea of a, of a hippie subculture once you're part of the mainstream culture you're not a subculture anymore you're you're, you're in this sort of a machine that merges anything for being famous and you know uh, we see what the modern celebrity culture is it's it's got some good and bad in it but it's it's not uh, it's not hip
0: you conclude your book with a chapter titled Reflections in the Crystal Wind, which is a song by uh, Mimi and Richard Farina. And I think this is a really uh, wonderful tribute. So talk about them and talk about looking back now, you were just out of high school. You just graduated from high school in 1967 and you, became such an integral part of the world that was created by 1967. In a sense, you are the perfect and ultimate product
1: of that year. Well, I don't know about perfect and ultimate, but definitely a product of it. Um, I, uh, First of all, Richard and Mimi Farina were, uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, duos, and he tragically died. I forget when in the '60s from a motorcycle accident, but he was a protege of Dylan's. Uh, there's a great book called "Positively Fourth Street" by David Hajdu about the relationship between the Farinas and Bob Dylan, and Joan Baez earlier in the '60s. Wonderful and, book, and 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 his and and his lyrics to me and music holds up. It's one of the. Not all the music from that time still speaks to me. It does. And he wrote a song called Reflections of the Critical Wind. And again, I just stole the title. I don't even write about it. Richard. and cream in the book. But I admire them greatly. And I love that title. Uh, and uh, it was just, uh, I used it for the epilogue where I'm just trying to say, okay, well, what, what are the reverberations, you know? And uh, I did my best to list them. The new book
0: by Danny Goldberg is In Search of the Lost Chord, 1967 and the Hippie Idea. Thank you for joining me, Danny.
1: Thank you so much, Rick.